Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it's a book end here. Next Lord's Day I'll read chapter 12, and but we'll be looking at many, many verses in this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes. Here is the word of the Lord. Please give your attention. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear. It's fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? The person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Grass withers and a flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever, this word of wisdom. Have you seen the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma? It's fascinating to see the interviews of the creators of social platforms who realize what they've done in, in social engineering, why, rewiring the brain, as, especially young people are on social media and they are, they are addicted. And they say in, in their interviews that they did not mean this to happen. It was not their intent. And they're asked the question, so what is actually the problem? Why, why are children becoming addicted to youth, becoming addicted to social media and they don't have an answer to it because they have no standard in which to discern what is true. They don't understand why there is this, what we know is the fallen human condition. What has happened to us that we are dr drawn in to, to seek to live for the things of this world? And the writer to the to in Ecclesiastes, this this author here explains the meaninglessness, the vanity 
of living this life under the sun. Who is the author here? If you look at verse 1, it's the words of the teacher or the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 12, it says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Who could that be? But King Solomon. It seems quite clear that this is Solomon who wrote these words. He is a collector of, of wise sayings, gathering them together into this book of Ecclesiastes. And we see that he, dis, he applies his mind to study in verse 13, to explore by wisdom all that is done under heavens, on the heavens. And he sees it to be a heavy burden that he's been given to be able to try to understand this life under the sun. And he concludes to say that it's all vanity. Verse 2, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, utter meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. That's his conclusion. After all his study, it's vanity. Now, vanity is not what you have in your bathroom. And when boys and girls look at themselves in the mirror and you say, well, that's very vain when you just spend hours in front of the mirror. That's, that's vanity. Well, that's different from this. We're talking about a vanity that is like a vapor. It's breath. It's something that is fleeting. Something that is, you can't grasp. Children, can you actually grasp the wind? Maybe you'll try to catch a, a leaf that is being carried by the wind, but you can't grasp the wind. That's the vanity of life. That's what he's saying. Everything is like that. It's just vanity of vanities. So how do we live in this life that is full of vanity? We want to see in these verses, in Ecclesiastes, especially the first part of Ecclesiastes, that there is a God-word perspective that we, God-fearing people, have in this life on earth. Even though it's fleeting, it's momentary, even though there are two things that happen in our lives that we all experience, and those are frustration and perplexity. So we have to admit that, that we all experience the frustration of this life. In verse 3, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? It's frustrating. We labor and we wonder, what is the fruit of our labor? What does man gain? It seems to be nothing. There's also perplexity that we go through in our lives. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, he has, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in human hearts, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man can never find out what God has done. From the beginning to the end, it's, it's unfathomable. We can't understand it. There seems to be no apparent purpose, no apparent meaning in this life. That's the perplexity, the futility that it seems to be. Frustration, perplexity. Unless we have this God-word perspective. Then we start to see things clearly, that there is meaning, there is fulfillment, there is joy, there is purpose, and there's even a, a God-glorifying life that we can live under the sun. So what we're going to do in this survey is, first of all, talk about the life of vanity, five categories of this life of vanity. 
Then we're going to take an interlude as we see a time for everything, chapter 3, and then we're going to see the second, the last part is a Godward perspective in this vain life, and that's fear in God. So first of all, in this frustration, in the perplexity of this vain life, we see fat, five categories of this vanity, this vanity, first of all, of experience, vanity of experience. We experience vanity even as we observe God's creation. It seems to be vain in a sense that as we observe it, we see a cycle in this creation. Sun rises, sun sets, the wind blows, turns to the south, the streams flow into the sea. We just read this, all of this. It seems to be wearisome, the preacher says. It seems to be this cycle over and over, just around and around it goes. In verse 8 it says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of fill of hearing. We observe these things, and yet it's weary to us. It seems like it's going around and around. You look at track and field, and people are just running around in a circle. How meaningful is that? I, I was a swimmer, and I just back and forth in the, in the pool, back and forth. Life seems to be that way. What, what's the purpose of it all? Well, there seems to be nothing new. It just goes round and around. In verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. There's a movie called Groundhog Day. It's about Phil Collins, Connors, who's a cynical TV weatherman. And he was covering Grand, Grand, uh, Groundhog Day, February 2nd. And he's trapped in this loop, waking up every morning to be the same day, February 2nd. It seems like life is just like that. We wake up and it's the same over and over and over. Unless you have a Godward perspective. If, if you don't, you'll, be tr- you'll, you'll feel trapped in that cycle. That seems to be the vanity of our experience of life. Secondly, the vanity of study. We have some students here, young people in school, different ages of people in school. Well, what's, what about your studies here? Listen to these words in chapter 1, verse 16. I said to myself, the teacher says, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. Even studies. All that you study can be like chasing after the wind because you apply yourself to it and you find what's the use. Learn all these things about life. You still can't figure life out. Instead, he says, with much wisdom comes much sorrow, more knowledge, more grief. Increase in knowledge, increase in sorrow, it seems. The more we read, the more we learn, the more it seems there is a meaninglessness to it. It's sometimes the, the hypochondriac was reading the, the medical manual and finds that he has every disease in the manual. It's just learning, learning, and yet not necessarily helping you. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. And not knowing much, it seems the teacher says. Chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 He says, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? 
I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Whether you're seeking to be wise or, or, or being a fool, it seems that the end is the same. And yet a God word perspective shows us that there is a pursuit of wisdom. There is a pursuit of knowledge from God. That when you do pursue, you will find that you will never plunge the inexhaustible depths of God's wisdom and knowledge. But we're still encouraged in Scripture to pursue God and that knowledge. And at times we might throw up our hands, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, at the end of how he expounds about sin, salvation, sanctification, he says, he exclaims, well, let me read it. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to him that we, he should be repaid? He, he talks about the judgments of the Lord that are inscrutable. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments. It cannot be found out. Even yet, we pursue to know. So the vanity of study. Thirdly, the vanity of hedonism. King Solomon pursued pleasure with all he had. His father had established peace in the kingdom, and he had all the wealth of this kingdom at his disposable, and he went for it. He went for all the pleasure that he could seek. In chapter 2, he speaks of all that he had, building houses for himself, gardens and parks, all kinds of fruit trees, reservoirs. He had male and female slaves, um, all the flocks and the herds, silver and the gold, the treasures of the kings and provinces. He had singers, a harem, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. All he, that he did, he was pursuing with all his heart. It was hedonism, pursuing pleasure. And yet he found it even then that he was not satisfied. He was having it all, and yet he was not full. It's like the addict who's pursuing more and more, a greater high, higher and higher and higher, never satisfied. Because hedonism in this life, in this world, leads to nihilism, which is no meaning, no purpose. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, the preacher says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. All that he sought after, he found that it was in the end meaningless. Because hedonism leading to nihilism leads to a bankrupt life. But the God word perspective, you may have heard the idea of Christian hedonism. It's actually pursuing pleasure, a pleasure that is delighting in God, is finding your pleasure and joy in God. Psalm 73 says, Who am I in heaven but you? Nothing I desire on earth besides you. Though my strength and my, my heart may fail, you are the strength of my heart and my, ple- and, and, uh, my portion forevermore. Making God your delight and your pleasure. That's 
we could call Christian hedonism. That's the Godward perspective. Fourthly, we look at the vanity of work. Vanity of work. Toil in vain. Toil can be vain when it is out of envy. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Toiling, working out of envy of the other, never enjoying it. Verse 8, chapter 4, there's a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. This kind of toil. But there's another kind of work and toil with a Godward perspective that we find here. Chapter 2, verse 24, we have the one who finds that there's nothing better than to work. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? There's nothing better but to eat and drink, enjoying it as God gives it. Even as a gift, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift of God. Work is a gift of God if we are doing it in reference, with reference to God. And this is our lot, chapter 2, 3, verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? That is a gift. It is our lot to work with the hands God has given to us. Enjoyment in our labor. That's what pleases God. Verse 26 of chapter 2. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner who gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth, to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So there is a purpose in labor, in toil, if it is to please God. We think of Paul writing to the church in Corinth after speaking writing of the, the resurrection, and he concludes that chapter in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says, Now be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, if it is in reference to the Lord. So, fourthly, the vanity of work. Fifthly, the vanity of life. All of life. The vanity of it. Chapter 3, verse 18 to 21. And I said to myself, as for humans, God sets them so that they will see that they are like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows that the spirit, human spirit rises upward and the spirit of animal goes down into the earth. The preacher observes the beast of the earth and he sees it seems as though the fate is the same. They both go back to the dust. 
Seems to be no difference. Same men, no advantage. All vanity. Man comes from the dust, returns to the dust. So does the beast return to the earth. And we know where that comes from. With the first sin came death. The wages of sin is death. But then we also know the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Romans 6.23, that's the Godward perspective in this life. Though it's vain, meaningless in so many ways, we know that there is another life, an eternal life with that heavenly perspective. There is a, a, there is a new heavens and a new earth that God is preparing where there's no meaningless, no vanity in that life. So the vanity of in those four categories Discouraged? Seems that life is meaningless? Well, there is a time for everything, as we see in chapter 3. As we take this interlude here, the time for everything in this vain life. A time from birth to, to death. A time for everything, every matter. And notice that there is a good season, and also there's a time of an opposite season in life. We see this ourselves, and maybe which season you are in as you hear these words, and Chapter 3, verse 2 to 8. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. There's a time and season for everything in life. Sometimes you see yourself as you're on two tracks. You can think of things in your life that are going very well. It's a good season. But then you're reminded of another area of your life that are just weighs you down. So it's like two tracks that you're going in life. Two juxtapositions and paradoxes, it seems, in life. And you wonder how to live in this life. But we see in chapter 3, verse 11, that the Lord has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything that he does is fitting. It's appropriate in his time. In his time. At Christmas, we, we always do a puzzle. And we are the ones who can put the pieces together. But we always follow the picture to guide us in what it should look like in the end. But in this life, we are only seeing the pieces. We're not seeing the, the big picture as God sees it. He sees the end from the beginning. And it's the same for us. We only see the things and we wonder why this season or this time, this deed, whatever is happening in our lives, what God is doing. But God has a timeline of your life and everything in his mind, in his perspective, is fitting and timed perfectly. So whatever the days ahead, we're getting into a new year, 2023, whatever those days are ahead for you, Think of these words in chapter 7, verse 14. It says, When time is good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, 
Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. 2023, do you know how it will go? The pieces God has for you, we do not know. God knows the end. He knows it all. And his time is perfect. Now let's move to this last portion of seeing a Godward perspective in this book of Ecclesiastes. And it's always this theme of fearing God. Fearing God. First of all, it's the fearing God because he is sovereign. He's sovereign. Chapter 3, verse 14. We read, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. That's his purpose. Arranging everything so that we would see his sovereignty and fear him for his sovereignty. What God does is final. It cannot be changed. What he has decided will, will happen. And we may not understand why God does what he does. Understand his actions. And we may ask why. And we may get no answer. We can be assured yet that in his providence, that his holy, wise, preserving, governing of all things is according to his plan, his care of us, whether in the joys or the tragedies, he is sovereign. Elizabeth Elliot, you may know her. She was the wife of Jim Elliot. Her husband was slaughtered, went to reach out to um, the Waudani tribe, in Ecuador, and she went actually to the tribe herself with her daughter, and she ministered to that tribe. Well, she had two other husbands after that, and throughout her life, even at the end of her life, she would look back, and she wondered about all these tragedies or all these things in her life, and she still didn't understand why, even at the end of her life, and yet that was okay. She was submitting herself to the sovereignty of God. Still not understanding. Because God does what he pleases. He does his holy will. And that leads us to fear him. To reverence him. Believing that God is good in his intentions. He has good gifts for his children. And he works all things together in the end for good. Even though it's not good. He works it out for good. So God would perspective in fearing God because he's sovereign. Secondly, because he's righteous. God is righteous. Our fear of God is seen in how we approach him. Do we approach him as holy and righteous? Chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. This is the approach to God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that what they are doing. Do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. God is in heaven. He is holy. He is righteous. How do you approach him as he is when you enter into the house of God? Now fools will utter whatever is on their minds, but the wise out of fear, will listen to the words of God. Even they will do as it says here. Their words will be few. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. 
that when we come to worship as the wise, recognizing him as righteous and holy, and at times putting our hands over our mouth, recognizing who he is, fearing him. Well, we know in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are not coming to a mountain where it would cause us to be in dread, Mount Sinai. But we're coming to Mount Zion. And that's where we come with joy, but with reverence and awe. In verse 28, chapter 12 of Hebrews, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the approach to a God who is righteous and holy, fearing him for his sovereignty, for his righteousness, giving us that Godward perspective of who he is. Augustine famously wrote, If you have, uh, you, Lord, have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. We have been made by God with this purpose, to rest in him, to worship him. In chapter 3, verse 11, we know that it says here, he has set eternity in the human heart, that there is a sense in everyone, every image bearer of in their souls of this immortality, that there's something beyond the grave that we all await. And we will be restless until we find our rest in the God who created us. There's something more to this life, this vain life, this seemingly meaningless life. That's what we all know. Now, the world tries to give us answers to the questions that we have of what seem, the seeming vanity of this life. But they are solutions that are dissatisfying. They're meaningless. We fill our lives. Often people are just going from one distraction to the next. You know, some people, they can't live without having music being played throughout the day, throughout the night, just constant distraction or video games or whatever it might be, distracting ourselves from this meaningless life and driving us into greater despair. The solution to the problem is not going to be found in anything in this world because the world has fallen. It's broken. We'll not find the meaning here. We must search for the meaning beyond here because this world has been subjected to futility. This is what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. The same word of futility is there in Romans chapter 8. And the whole even creation groans longingly for something beyond this world, the redemption from futility in this vain world. So how do we live in this, this the vanity of this life? of this world that we are in, living under the sun. We seek the wisdom, even in these words in Ecclesiastes. We're going to find it in God, in Christ. Who is Christ? He is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, Christ Jesus has become to us wisdom from God. We have wisdom from God in Christ. We find in him. Colossians 2, verse 3, in Christ are are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So receiving the wisdom in Christ, 
is actually finding in Christ a salvation that gives us in that salvation this whole Godward perspective of redemption of our lives and even of this world in the end and the futility of this life and being wise unto salvation, believing in Christ as our wisdom and in Christ finding meaning, finding purpose in this world. So the Godward life is ultimately to God's glory. So which life will you live going into 2023? You seek it out, this wisdom that is found in God, and we go to the Proverbs, even in Ecclesiastes, but especially in the book of Proverbs, that the fear of God is a beginning of wisdom. And children, you think of the wise men, well, what do they do? Wise men seek Jesus. They sought Jesus. And you'll find wisdom in Jesus Christ.